This week's episode is about George Gurdjieff and his teachings called The Fourth Way. How are you? What's it been like in your city? In my city? Yeah. Well, Walmart's closed early. Yeah, I hate that. It's literally the word, like 5.30, it's closed. Oh, And no. I'm just like, I can't handle it. I wanted to go get a bathing suit. <laughs> Hashtag first world problems. I mean. Yeah, I wanted to go get a bathing suit. And so I was frustrated. And Chris was like, well, you wanted to get alcohol and a bathing suit. So just go to Food Line and get alcohol and no bathing suit. Um. There have been protests in Fayetteville. Uh, I don't think there were any in my actual city. Churches are opening, which is weird. <laughs> yeah, it's, everything just feels really weird still. Yeah, everything. Like, I'm just, like, we're still acting like we're in, we're in phase two as a as a state. But I and my family are still acting like it's phase one. Mm-hmm. Still wear my mask everywhere. I still barely go anywhere. We get our groceries delivered. We don't really go out. If we do, it's like once a week, maybe. And then now Joe has started going to speech today. He started that. So, but they have a lot of precautions in place. Like you pull up, you call, they come get your kid. Like there's no waiting room or anything like that. And he actually did really good today, which was good because he just likes to scream and throw shit. So that's fun. Um, <laughs> what about you? How's your city? Yeah, I mean, pretty much the same. I mean, out where I live like, you know, 30 minutes outside of a city similar to you. So mm-hmm. it's not too bad. Walmart has been closing early also because of the protests and the riots and stuff. Um, did anybody actually loot your Walmart? No, no. Somebody looted. I don't know, not a Target, but something like that, like in the city. Mm. But yeah, there wasn't much. And the protests have been largely peaceful. Everybody's been um, pretty much obeying the curfew. Nothing crazy. Mm. We had in Fayetteville, one of the the one Walmart, because there's like three Walmarts in Fayetteville, because it's pretty big. Um, But the one Walmart one guy was looting and tried to steal a TV and that's when they enacted the curse. Like, I'm like, guys, mm-hmm. are you kidding me? One dude, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why do you have to ruin it for the rest of us? Like there weren't looters. There was one thief. That is it. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you call a thief. Yeah. It's a thief, not a looter. I think it's crazy that they call it looting though. When a bunch of thieves decide they're going to steal at the same time. What's the max number? All right, listeners. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> what is, when does it become a looting? More than okay. 10. <laughs> is is that... it like a family of thieves? Yes. Uh, does it have to be more than five? Does yes. the baby count? Are they related or not? Do they have past connections? Like, when does it become looting? <laughs> anyway. Do they have to be anti-fascists? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I mean, but all the the weird uh, bank robbery movies that we watch, um, I'm thinking of, um, what's that, The Italian Job with Charlize Theron oh, yeah, and Mark yeah, Wahlberg. Very good movie. And now I want to watch that tonight. I think we own it. I think I have it too. Nice. <laughs> it's a good movie. Now I want to watch it. 
but like something like that they're going in and thieving like thieving are they looters yeah. too is are there they a group? exactly we want to know looters is the american military looters oh yeah i don't know, I don't know. <laughs> fuck yeah <laughs> yes instant answer <laughs> yes are you kidding me any so my husband is very into conspiracy theories and such he very much is like don't believe what you see on the news which i'm like mm-hmm. yeah duh obviously duh. <laughs> they're bought obviously um but he's like so you know every time he gets drunk he starts talking about um it's so funny. He starts talking about the American government, the American uh, army and the war in Iran and Iraq. And now mm-hmm. every time that the military, when they got Osama bin Laden and they were taking pictures of all these military dudes standing on top of his gold, what was the real reason for going in there? Was it to get the gold or was it to get the guy? <laughs> mm-hmm. like, listen, it's nine 30 at night. <laughs> I need to go to bed. <laughs> We've had this conversation 10 times. <laughs> yeah, I go to bed. Uh, hmm. <laughs> anyway, it's pretty funny, though. Interesting. I didn't know that there was gold involved. I didn't, really, I didn't um, know. I didn't know either, but he's like, there are videos and there are pictures. And I'm like, okay. Hmm. <laughs> I know things are corrupt. You don't have to right, prove You don't have to, to convince me. me. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah oh man anyway <laughs> so who are we uh who are we talking about today we are talking about this guy named george gurdjieff okay uh-huh he's um he's like a late 1800s early mid 1900s cultish leader nice i like the cultish yes. Um, a little bit of subdued after Jonestown. Yeah, yes. Yeah, exactly. It's very light. He's just kind of, you can't really tell if he's a liar or if he is just um, very imaginative or if yeah. he really did see some crazy stuff. You, you never know. Like aliens? Really um, Not really aliens. He like, no. he set out on this journey to, you know, find secret cults that weren't supposed to exist anymore and he supposedly came into contact with some of them but these specific groups are not actually believed to exist at this point and so people think he was just using their supposed existence as like a teaching device a sort of allegory metaphorical kind of story but he writes it as true so it's it's weird That makes me think of William Calm and how, go back to that episode, if you guys did not listen, that is a really good one. Uh, But when William Calm used that idea, uh, I believe it was in Brazil, somewhere in South America, where those three children saw visions on a certain day of every month. And how he took that Mm -hmm. and said, I get visions from the Mother Mary on the certain, the same day, like, no, you're just copying off of somebody else's stuff. <laughs> Again. Mm-hmm. Right. Anyway. George Gurdjieff was born in the late 1860s. Um, the answers that people have gotten from him or had gotten from him about his actual birth date ranged from 1866 to 1877. Like you can never get a straight answer. Sometimes he'd be like, I was born in 1872 in November and then the next time you asked him he'd be like I was born in 1877 on the stroke of midnight 
have no idea. Yeah. That's just like Father Divine. Which yeah. We're going to talk about him. I'm going to do him next week. But Father Divine was the same way. Like, no one knows when he was born. One, because it was probably um, around a time when African Americans didn't really, that stuff wasn't ta- like tracked mm-hmm. at all. Um, someone who claimed to be his mom showed up and said that it was he was born on this date, but nobody really knows for sure because he was just changing it all the time, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly like this. So, for a little bit of like context, in 1866, Andrew Jackson was the president and tried to veto the Civil Rights Act in the U.S., but it was actually eventually passed. Andrew Jackson mm-hmm. was a piece of shit, yes, so we're just going to put that out there. Have you watched Thirteenth is- on Netflix? Not yet. Oh, um, buddy, do it. Buddy, do it. Yeah, it's on my list, but I did see a meme. It was like, 2020 is like living through the Spanish influenza, the Great Depression. And the Civil War. The Civil War and Andrew Jackson as president. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. this guy tried to veto the Civil Rights Act in 66. But in 1877 is when Russia finally declared war on Turkey. And he was born, you know, in that area. So regardless of um, whether he was born in 66 or in between up to 77, there was plenty, you know, plenty culturally going on throughout those 10 years. 11 years. So his father was Greek and his mother was Armenian. And at the start of the war, his family moved um, to cars in the Ottoman Empire that was it was captured by Russia at the time. So it was technically Russia, but I'm pretty sure it's Armenian right now, maybe Turkish, Turkish. Yeah, Turkish. So at the time, um, late 60s to late 70s, Cars was um, a melting pot of different ethnicities and their religions. There was Armenians there, Russians, Caucasus Greeks, Georgians, Turks, Kurds, some European Christians. They were all living there, like just in this beautiful little harmonious community, just respecting each other's beliefs, being friends with each other's families, respecting traveling mystics. Like it was just a beautiful little place. Nice. Yeah, I know, right? I want to move there, but like then, not now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So as a result of this, like, you know, melting pot, Gurdjieff was fluent in Armenian. His mother was Armenian. His father was Greek, so he was also fluent in Pontic Greek. He was fluent in Russian, and he was fluent in Turkish. But like, high Turkish, not dialect. You know, he was very elegant. Nice. Yeah. His family. All right. (laughs) <laughs> really close with a, a Christian Russian named Dean Borsch, who took over his education when they got to cars. And he just like taught him science and the Bible and mysticism and stuff. I feel some type of way about that, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know. It, it's, it's the early 1800s, you know, you never know. Maybe the church wasn't like that at the time. Fingers crossed. I don't know. I feel like the church has always been like that, though. Um, If you go all the way back to pretty much as soon as Gutenberg and the printing press, Mm. before that, when, like, the Catholic Church had uh, Latin services and they were the soul keepers of the truth. And for Jada can see my bunny ears, like, quotes, the truth. 
uh, it gives me so many feelings talking about Christianity and the history of it and mm-hmm. the misogyny and the patriarchy. There is so much that goes into the history of Christianity. And I mean, right now we're dealing with so much of like understanding black culture and understanding what black people are having to go through and not understanding and not knowing their culture, like history wise. It's like, that's because these motherfuckers were the ones who stole it and are the only ones who decided they were going to write about their own history. And who knows if they even changed it, you know, Jesus and stuff Mm -hmm. like, like the fact, okay, we're going on a tangent. We're come along with me guys. Cause this is going to (laughs) happen. So I was reading. Okay. So I went to Bible college after high school. If you listen to one of the episodes, you will hear about how that was, uh, forced ish upon me. I really didn't have any other choice. So I consider it being forced in that I was not able to go to a normal college or I would one, go to hell and two, never be able to come back home to my family again. So felt forced, but that all aside, I, in Bible college, I took a course called religions of the world, I think. And I actually still have the book. And so if anybody wants it, I will send it to you. I don't care. (laughs) I want to get rid of this book. But I was looking at it, and the last chapter is all about why Christianity is legit. And one of the reasons, it was almost like, you know how Christians are like, well, no, dinosaur theory of millions of years doesn't make sense because you're using the bone to date the rock, to date the bone. Uh-huh. Circular reasoning, they call it. Right. They do the same thing with their own ideas. So these guys were inspired by God because it says in there that they were inspired by God. So they must have been inspired by God. No. <laughs> what? Are you, that's a reason? Are you kidding me? You have Cold no science. inspired by God. Are they inspired by God? Look. I I can say I'm inspired by God. The people that we talk about in this podcast say that they're inspired by God. And we can clearly see that most of them are not. Anyway, Mm. so the idea that the written history of Christianity, and then they say, well, there are other books that validate it. Well, then what validates those books? Like, all you have is a bunch of white people telling you (laughs) what happened. Are you kidding me? Mm Mm-hmm. I saw a post on Facebook that said, I don't understand African-Americans and Native Americans who believe in Christianity because you're literally just propagating the ideas and religion that came and killed yours. Like you were introduced to this religion through slavery, torture and raping African-Americans and Native Americans, but you still believe it. Yep, It's crazy to me. And then I had this conversation with somebody after I posted that, shared it. They were like, yeah, so many people don't act like Christ. It's so sad. They give Christianity a bad name. And I was like, no, that is Christianity's name. (laughs) You don't understand. (laughs) Not giving it a bad name. They killed the witches. They killed the pagans. They killed the white shamans. They killed women, just right up, regular, straight up women, not even witch women. All right. Everybody alive is surviving christianity yeah boom (laughs) mic drop (laughs) anyway (sighs) so kerjif um educated by a dean of a a russian priest and um in 1881 his eldest sister died 
which she was his favorite. And he was very sad about that. And then he himself was in a duel that year where he apparently almost died also. Duels <laughs> crack me up. Okay. <laughs> I gotta say, I like, okay, I love the, the book, The Count of Monte Cristo. Yes. And the duel scene in that book. But like, anytime I think of a duel, that's what I think of. I think of that, the gun, the gun duel in The Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> it's like, they had shitty guns back then too. The aim was awful. I mean, as accurate as you can be, but it was awful. You've seen the movies, right? Oh, yeah. They're pointing right at each other and it hits the fucking tree 10 feet over. It's Great like stormtroopers. Stormtroopers. Oh, shot up. I love it. So after his sister died and he himself almost died in a duel, this is when he became intrigued with paranormal phenomena. In 1882, that's a year later, he almost got shot again. And um, by 1884, he had distilled his existential questions into one question. What is the significance of human and organic life? I mean, okay, so anyone who has... Okay, so I was listening to a podcast the other day, and I sent it to you, about um, past life regression Mm -hmm. and things like that. And in the podcast, uh, the two people talking about it, and it was the Sit First Well podcast... They, I talk about them all the time because that's like my, one of my favorite podcasts lately. Mm-hmm. Um, just like connecting with other witch, witches and people who are into that kind of stuff. Like I really enjoy it. Um, but all that aside, uh, they mentioned, they said most people don't think about the end of life very often. But when you do, people are usually terrified of it. And I realized that I started thinking about death and fear of death and like, like, I am terrified to die. And this is just me being super real. Um, ever since mom passed, I think about death almost on a daily basis. Like, it'll randomly pop up in my brain. I'll be driving and I'll, like, just be overcome with emotion of thinking, like, what's going to happen? What happens after we die? What is really the, like, do we go to the plane that is calling us home and then we come back? Like, you know, like all these different things of like past life and what past lives are and how we don't remember anything really from our past lives. And do we just come back with new, new thoughts, new memories, but we're old, older in our souls. And I realized like, well, if it's not normal to think about all the time, I definitely think about it all the time. And I feel like that's maybe where he's, yeah, I feel like that's maybe where he's coming from. Um, You know, you're, you lose someone that you love and it makes you really think about, Mm what is next and are they still with us and do they still listen to us and are they here to help us or where have they gone? Have they moved on? And will we, cause they, uh, one of the things that they said was that some people believe that um, your mother, your children and your relatives were with you in your past life, but in different ways and in different mm-hmm. relationships. Um, so like I strongly believe that if that reincarnation is real, that, families yes. have incarnated together in the past in different ways oh sure yeah yeah so i don't know but it made me think like but i can understand why this would make him start thinking existentially because mm-hmm. i know that it, it did for me for sure like i never i was like you know life happens and you move on and you just keep you live and you'd make the most of it and you don't really think about death that much and existential stuff until you lose someone that you love dearly and you wonder 
where do we go when we fall asleep? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't nice know. Quote. Love Billy. Yes, me too. No. <laughs> <sighs> I've been listening to her a lot when I work because it's just super soothing. Oh my God. So, so I, I woke up and the first thing I did was listen to Ocean Eyes this morning. I haven't listened nice. to this song in forever. I <laughs> love Billie Eilish. Yeah. Yes. Same. So um, another thing that I know you're very into, uh, the Enneagram mm-hmm. personality aspects. Mm-hmm. So Wikipedia has this to say. An aspect of Gurdjieff's teachings that has come into prominence in recent decades is the Enneagram geometric figure. Mm. There many attempts to trace the origins of this virgin, sorry, not the virgin, the version <laughs> of the Enneagram. Some similar, similarities to other figures have been found, but it seems like Gurdjieff was the first person to make the Enneagram figure publicly known and that only he knew its true source. Interesting. Yeah, so somewhere in his travels, he found this figure geometric figure and have you seen it yeah i take it Lots. yeah and so just to give our listeners a bit of preview or overview preview doesn't make sense overview <laughs> there's a little sneak peek on what's going on <laughs> no i'm not taking my clothes off guys chill out um y'all don't want to see that it's fine <laughs> or maybe you do I don't know. I don't understand. To each their own. To each their own. So what, um, so the Enneagram, I am obsessed with the Enneagram only because it is literally the only personality test. And I love personality tests. I will take them all, but is the only one where I have felt so seen in my weirdness and my quirkiness and just like, how I think and how I approach life in just a very analytical sense. And like, there are rules you have to follow them. And I'm an Enneagram one. Just the fact that I just said there are rules you have to follow them. I'm a one. <laughs> like There is a sense of good and there's a sense of wrong. And if you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> so yeah. But the one connects with the two and I think the nine yeah, the two and the nine. So I am an Enneagram one wing two, I think. Something like that. I didn't focus a lot on the wing because I felt like the one was just like, yes, that's me. Um, But yeah, it's a very, like, if you haven't taken the test yet, definitely go take the test. It is so interesting. And a lot of people swear by it. But you're right. It has come to a lot of like, popularity like if you search mm-hmm. enneagram on instagram a lot of graphs guys a lot of pictures so many things definitely check it out but if this guy started it i don't know but i kind of like know. it most most <laughs> um it actually says it goes on to say most aspects of this application are not directly connected to Gurdjieff's Gurdjieff's teaching or his explanations of the enneagram he just brought okay the good symbol of it into the world as it were okay good (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i guess when he started it it had nothing to do with the personality analysis right it was just a geometric figure yeah i don't know what he used it for there's no further information about that but i would like Hmm. to it's very um like pentagram-esque you know yeah symbol itself so i'm I'm interested to see what he was trying to do with that well, in that time, uh, Satanism was taking more of a rise in the late 1800s and existential spirituality worldwide. 
um, that was happening, especially in Europe. America's late to everything. Right. Uh, but in Europe, it was definitely like that. Hashtag metric system. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, according to Gurdjieff, he traveled through Central Asia, Egypt, Iran, India, Tibet, and Rome before returning to Russia in 1912. 1912 is when we have like um, witness statements, if you will confirmed timelines, et cetera, et cetera. So anything between him being born and 1912 is like based on what he said he did. Mm. And he wrote three books about it, by the way. Oh my God, (laughs) self-absorbed much? Jeez. (laughs) Okay. He was never really forthcoming about where he learned or acquired his ideas, but his book, Meetings with Remarkable Men, is the only written version of his travels. In it, he says that when he left home, he moved to Tbilisi and worked for the Transcaucasian Railway Company. And on a break from them, he went on foot to study at a monastery in Armenia. And I looked okay, at it as a 55-hour walk. Wait, the, the trans what? Transcaucasian. Uh, the Caucasus is like <laughs> Russia, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Not trans Caucasians. Okay. Not Caucasians who are trans. Alright. I mean, it's Pride Month, you know? It's yeah, important. I mean, that's fair. That's fair. Hashtag Pride Month, guys. Yes, exactly. We support Black trans lives. Amen. Not just Black lives. Trans Black lives. Black sex workers matter. I mean, any workers matter, like black workers, not, that's not what I'm trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not what I'm saying. (laughs) What I'm trying to say is that all black workers matter. It doesn't matter what line of work you work in, whether it's sex or grocery bagging, your life matters. Yes, it does. Except that one bitch. (laughs) (laughs) The one everybody's talking about lately. Um, something Owen, Owen, something, something Owen, pretty much she is a black woman who is claiming that it's, she's a terrible human being. I don't even want to talk about her. I think our friend, I'm not going to say her name, but she mentioned her today and was like, yeah, no, her life doesn't matter. (laughs) I was like, yes. Because I've, I've, Word, I, I'm gonna yeah, I've, I've listened to her stuff, uh, not because I wanted to, but because people were talking about it. And so I was intrigued. Isn't it the girl who's like very Christian? Probably. She's got a viral post going around. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I saw something about that. Yep. Never mind. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not personally going to go so far as to say that her life doesn't matter, but I'm going to go so far as to say that I don't give a shit about it. So, yeah. It's that. like, you know how everybody says that bitch Carol? <laughs> She's yeah. the black version of that bitch Carol. <laughs> God dang it. Yes. Continue. Sorry, I keep distracting. I'm sorry. No, no. It's, hey, very um, related. So yeah, he worked for the Transcaucasian Railway Company. And on a break from working for them, he went on foot to study at the monastery in Armenia. Which he says 55 up, hours to walk. Five hour walk from Tbilisi to 
the very hard to pronounce city that he went to. I mean, over three days, that's not terrible. Yeah, I guess if you have a place to sleep and you got a fire and stuff. No wolves. Pretty normal. I've never, yeah, I don't know what kind of wildlife there is in (laughs) Tbilisi or Armenia. So no idea. Um, So he studied at this monastery for three months, and then he went to Constantinople to study dervishes, which are kind of like yogis. Mm -hmm. They they believe in material poverty. They create sacred dances, etc. You know, like a little monk sort of community. Monks are the only religion or religious group that do not believe in any type of life after death. Really? Which I thought was really interesting, which is, I guess it kind of makes sense in that they are atoning for so much now, mm. I guess. I, don't, I thought it was, I heard that on a podcast. I do find that really interesting because I've heard a lot about a lot, a lot of monks uh, self-mummifying and like, why would you do that if you're not trying to, I don't know, because isn't mummifying usually like preserve the state of the body so that the spirit can preserve itself as it moves through the afterlife or some shit i don't know i know but it it sounds disgusting (laughs) yeah they like stop eating certain things like only stick to nuts and then only stick to water and then only stick to this until they're not eating anything at all and they just you know die ding ding i'll let you know when i'm dead you can close my cave up physically when they stop ringing their bell the other monks are like okay he's not breathing anymore we're gonna shut that (laughs) what I need to look in the monks. This is nuts. <laughs> that is nuts. Yeah. Continue. Sometimes it doesn't work. They don't end up being mummified and their body does in fact break down just like anybody else's. But sometimes it does work. But it's usually because of the cold or extremely hot conditions in which they buried themselves. Well, yeah, that'll kill anyone, whether you're eating yeah. or not. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> just saying. <sighs> Uh, yeah, so he went to uh, study dervishes, and he supposedly at this point finds reference to the Sarmong Brotherhood, um, which is that that cult that I was talking about. They're like an offshoot of the Essenes, which okay. were a, a Jewish community that are supposedly the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm-hmm. Um, we should talk so about that. Sarmong later. Brotherhood was supposed to, yes, let's, supposedly started in Babylon. Okay. Um, and he was super in, interested. He like found a letter from one monk to another that said something about them. Uh, he also found, supposedly, remember this is all in his novel. Mm-hmm. Not sure if it's a novel or an autobiography. Probably a novel. Um, <laughs> right. He found a map of pre-desert Egypt. So instead of like going where he was going to go to find the Sarmong Brotherhood, he ends up going to Alexandria, Egypt. He's like traveling just all over the place with this secret brotherhood that's like trying to find the Sarmong Brotherhood. It's it's crazy. There's like Mm -hmm. one woman in the group. The rest of them are dudes. He's close with a lot of them, but they end up like leaving each other in different places and doesn't sound like a traveling group to me. It sounds like, hey, we're all looking for something similar. Cool. That's it. Sounds like hitchhikers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like a group of hitchhikers. Precisely. Okay. But they call themselves like the truth seekers or something. 
I mean, so yeah. <laughs> the hitchhikers call themselves that too. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> um, so it's been common, commonly speculated that his book, Meetings with Remarkable Men, is metaphorical and that the people he meets in the story represent the three types of people that Gurdjieff believed existed. Hmm. Centered in their mind, centered in their emotions, and centered in their body. Because it also just so happens that at the same time as he's traveling in this story for spiritual reasons, war is going on all over the place, like in every country that he's going through. And he Uh is associated with a bunch of political groups at this time. So he's traveling as an envoy for, you know, Hmm. the Russians, the Turks, the Tibetans, etc. So he's like a neutral party in all of it. Kind of. Interesting. It's something that they called the Great Game. I'm not sure what exactly. Yeah. Look it up. It's movie. Weird. I think there's a movie called The Great Game or something game. It's uh, this one, right? Benedict Cumberbatch and Keira yeah, Knightley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really good movie. But I also love both of them. So <laughs> I might right. be partial. A little bit biased. It didn't even matter if it was good or not. It had them in it. And Benedict Cumberbatch was gay. It was fantastic. It was a great oh movie. God, I gotta watch it gotta watch it i heard about what actually happened to him in real life though so i didn't want to see it because it made me really sad to think about about when he got jacked didn't they they did something to him because he was gay or like didn't give him credit for all of the shit that he did and he ended up like dying from a hate crime yeah yeah. yes because it is based on a true story yes um, so I'm not entirely sure, but I feel like the movie did a really good job. I haven't seen it in like a year or two, but I feel sure. like the movie did a really good job of like portraying all of the aspects of him mm. and all of his credentials. But I'm pretty sure if I'm thinking of Europeans during the 1900s, then yeah, they didn't give any credit to a gay dude. Yeah. So, but the the actual movie's very, it's fantastic. So good. Okay. I might see it then. Highly recommended. All right. Well, um, very, very similar, I feel like, because he did end up becoming close with somebody who was in British intelligence, Mm. like, later. Mm. Um, So it may be the same exact situation. Yeah. So as he's, like, traveling as an envoy, he gets shot in Spakia, Greece, Mm. in 1896, and he gets evacuated to Jerusalem to heal. And instead of, you know, trying to stay in Jerusalem, he just goes back to where his parents live in Armenia. And um, it's called Girmi now or something like that. But at the time it was called Alexandropol. Okay. After he healed, he rejoined the war because that's what dudes do. (laughs) (laughs) I almost died. I'm going back. (laughs) Right. So he rejoins the war as a czarist agent. So he's working for Russia now. And he travels through Tibet and Siberia, where in his story at this point, he claims he finally found the Sarmong Brotherhood. Okay. And he studied with them for a little bit, I guess. I don't know. But um, in 1901, he disguised himself, he says, and he studied with some Tibetan monks and married a Tibetan. And actually got shot a second time. This is his third time almost getting shot, but his second time actually being shot. Got it. <sighs> Maybe stop doing that. Whatever it is right. that you're doing. Get out of the war. Go home, George. God. Curiosity killed the cat. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. 
And the cat had nine lives. The human didn't. Mm. Preach. (laughs) So by 1908, seven years later, after getting shot, he is in Tashkent, Turkestan, posing as a professor of natural and supernatural sciences. And he's also selling like carpets and oils and all kinds of beautiful goods on the side. Okay, Jim Jones with your monkeys. <laughs> exactly. And the most hilarious thing is there's this one point in the books where he says, I'm swearing off of hypnotism forever because he was hypnotizing people, I'm guessing. <laughs> I don't know how he, like, to, to make the money or while he was a professor or at what point he was using hypnotism, but he swore off it very seriously. And oh, then man. a decade later, swore off of it again. So I'm assuming <laughs> he didn't actually succeed in not hypnotizing anybody. He relapsed, Jada. It <laughs> happens. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Oh, so good. He's got like a very um, huge, huge handlebar mustache. It's super interesting. He looks like a, a charlatan of some kind. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. He's just... Uh. So, now in 1912, we are beginning with the start of the actual cult. Well, you know, the group mm-hmm. of Gurdjieffians. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, wait, I forgot. So, when he shows up to Russia mm-hmm. in 1912, he's wealthy, he's educated, he's a completely different person than when he left, right? Hmm. Okay. I mean, he's wealthy. He's been selling oils and, and birds. He he dyed birds yellow and sold them as finches. Sneaky motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah. So he's wealthy. He's been teaching people. He's a professor of supernatural sciences. You know, he's a different guy. So he, he shows up to his cousin's house in Moscow and he starts attracting students immediately. His mm. own cousins, some, you know intelligent middle classy sort of people and this one really annoying dude named rock me rock 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 even though he knew this dude was annoying and everybody in his group hated him and wished that he would leave and rock himself wanted to leave Gurdjieff kept him around specifically because he was annoying and he believed that the friction would help everybody to grow. (laughs) That sounds, oh man, that sounds like something that uh, the director of the camp would say. I know. This is going to help. She's the thorn in your side for keeping her. (laughs) He also married a Polish woman named Julia Ostrowska at this time. Um, I thought he was already married. Yeah, to a Tibetan woman. I know. That's what I thought. Okay. Players be playing. Players do be playing. <laughs> Players gonna play, 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 play. <laughs> you know, Tay Tay. So, <clears throat> yeah, he was already married. He shows up in Moscow, marries a chick, starts teaching people, and starts calling himself Prince Ose. Oh, God. <laughs> he only did that for like a year, though, because then people were like, isn't that. George Gurdjieff? And he was like, ah, caught shit. <laughs> Dang it. Can't rename myself in my hometown. Are you kidding me? 
<laughs> Too much. I can't even handle it. I love it. So Prince Jose believed that people don't perceive reality in their current condition because they don't possess a unified consciousness. Basically, their body, their mind, and their emotions are all running separately, kind of on autopilot. Okay. And that people live in a state of hypnotic waking sleep. He said, man lives in his life in sleep, and in sleep he dies. So to him, each person perceives everything completely subjectively. He believed that people in their typical normal state function unconsciously and automatically, but that a person can wake up and become a different kind of human being. He called his teachings the fourth way as it combined mind, emotion, and body into one single way. That's really interesting mm-hmm. because I kind of agree. Right. Sense. Like, right. I do believe that there are people who are sleeping for a lot of their life, lives, life, lives. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> they're, they're sleeping in that they have not awoken to the idea that there is something beyond themselves. And I mean, right. as children, we are selfish human beings. Like human beings are selfish and self-centered by nature. And so it takes teaching and understanding and seeing the world around you to actually open your eyes to understand that you are not the only person in the world, even though it feels like that sometimes, like Mm -hmm. you're having these feelings, you're having these emotions and everybody else seems to just be doing things around you. You know, I remember Mm -hmm. growing up and thinking that and feeling like that um, and wondering like, do other people have the same feelings and thoughts that I do? Or is it just my own consciousness in a world of robots doing whatever they're programmed to do? I, mm-hmm. I thought weird shit when I was little, <laughs> but all that aside, <laughs> like there is a waking up that happens when you, sometimes when you have a kid or when something happens in your life and you realize that there is more outside of yourself. So I can understand mm-hmm. where he's coming from. I just don't trust a dude who calls himself a prince. <laughs> right. You know, that's super fair, super fair. But um, to be fair, I think that because I've read like some um, Tolstoy, I uh-huh. think Prince was like a not princely kind of title at the mm-hmm. time, you know, not not related to the king. You're just it's like lowered kind of for the uh-huh. Russian society, I feel mm. like you're the son of a, the really rich dude in town kind of thing. Interesting. Or you are the really rich dude in town. Hmm. Uh, but I don't know that for sure. So quote me on that. Okay. So by 1916, that's four years after he arrived in Moscow, he had gone from six followers to 30 followers, mm. among them famous composer Thomas de Hartmann. Hmm. And at this point, his teachings were heavily metaphysical and explained mostly with scientific terms. That changes later on. That's why that's important. Okay. So as the revolution was causing upheaval in Moscow and all of Russia, Gurdjieff decided to move back home to Armenia. On the way, though, he set up five communities on the Black Sea's southern coast in Russia. Hmm. So he moved to Essentuki. Essentuki? Don't know. It's spelled differently now, and it also has a different name at, like, different points in history. So don't quote me ever. (laughs) (laughs) So he moved to Essentuki and asked his family to come with him. And everyone did, but his father and his sister and her family. Okay. 
Um, later, she did arrive to come live with him as a refugee from the war. And she came with the news that their father was shot by Turkish forces on mm. May 15th. So he's, um, I mean, he's pretty upset about that. And mm-hmm. uh, he's thinking that it's not going to be safe for his his um, students and his group to be, you know, stuck in the middle of this war anymore. Mm-hmm. So at this point, he fabricates a new story about an expedition to Mount Induk. Mm. And he moves to Georgia. I don't know where Mount Induk is, but I don't think it's Georgia. <laughs> he moves to Georgia, USA. No, no, Georgia, <laughs> um, like by Russia, the country. Got it. Okay, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I, <laughs> no, that I would don't be a know huge loop. <laughs> yeah, right. Wait, they came to America. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> so on the way from Kentucky mm-hmm. to move his people to Georgia, he creates his own sacred dance, which he calls just the movements. And um, one of his students was a famous, a semi-famous dancer at the time. And she helped him, like she was instrumental in creating these movements. And she also taught them to future students. Mm. Um, her name was Jean de Saltzman. Okay. So in 1919 in Georgia, his closest students compiled the fundamentals of his ideas as he tried to write a ballet with Jean de Saltzman. He had already created the sacred movements and now he was trying to create a ballet, which I, I'm not like there's different, um, different stories. One is that it never came out. One is that it only was seen one time and then never played again, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. So not sure, but I don't, <laughs> it's a ballet. Who cares? <laughs> sorry, George. Not sorry. <laughs> right. So in Georgia, he also created his Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man. Hmm. And that lasted all of two seconds um, because the political conditions of the time, they, they kept having to move. It was crazy. So they go from Russia to Georgia and then to Turkey. So Gurdjieff, with his famous students, um, Ospensky, DeHartman, and um, J.G. Bennett, were allowed to witness some ceremonies of the whirling dervishes, which were, I mean, have you ever seen the whirling dervishes? I have no idea what that is. It's um, it's a sacred dance, but like they're very in unison. Have you ever seen those things where they're like, yeah, you know, the multiple arms? Yeah, super okay. cool stuff. Yeah, it's similar to that but they're all they're not like you know in a line or anything they're just doing beautiful synchronized dances interesting Um, so anyway he was allowed to witness the ceremony which i find really cool and in constantinople or no in in istanbul he also connected with jg bennett who is the head of british military intelligence at this time in constantinople now bennett is super important because he um I mean, kind of famous, right? Well-known. And he had a lot to say about George Gurdjieff and also became one of his students later on. Like, he wasn't just buddies with him. He studied under him. Hmm. And um, he describes Gurdjieff in these words. In Gurdjieff, East and West do not just meet. Their difference is annihilated in a world outlook which knows no distinctions of race or creed. This was my first and has remained one of my strongest impressions. 
a Greek from the Caucasus. He spoke Turkish with an accent of unexpected purity. The accent that one <clears throat> that one associated bred in the narrow circle of the imperial court. His appearance was striking enough, even in Turkey, where one saw many unusual types. His head was shaven, immense black mustache, eyes which at one moment seemed very pale and at another almost black. A low average height, he gave nevertheless an impression of great physical strength. And uh, J.G. Bennett is also the guy who ultimately concluded that his books were symbolic and not autobiographical. Okay. Um, but after his death, of course, because nobody would say that to George's face. Of course not. <laughs> Can't have this short man who looks strong <laughs> coming up against you. <laughs> you know, he gave the appearance of immense physical strength. Hey, buddy, I think your books are lies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. They um, are calling themselves the Institute for the harmonious development of man, but they don't actually have an institute. They're just a group of people. So in 1920, Gurdjieff starts traveling around um, Western Europe, London, Berlin, France. He's um, doing workshop, workshops, workshops. <laughs> <laughs> the workshops. Uh, teaching. Yeah, yeah. So he finds a spot in Paris that he loves. He's like, yes, lock it down. And he establishes a new institute for the harmonious development of man there. Hmm. And this is where stuff really changes. It's not like metaphysical science, highfalutin, trying to explain the secrets of the universe. Um, it's, um, hmm. there's a lot of manual labor. I'll say that. Hmm. Anytime you start a commune, you need people to work the land. Yes. yes How are you, you going to feed people? How are you going to take care of them? Somebody's got to take care of the kids. It's a whole thing. Running a cult is hard work. <laughs> Very true. There was actually a lot of kids that did grow up there hmm. that later went on to speak about how awesome George Gurdjieff was. So, question mark. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, Might have just been a cool dude, but with yeah. really weird groupy stuff. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, He's kind of like a spiritual rock star. Yeah. Yeah. Little creepy. Black Sabbath type. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So um, the middle class types who were attracted to Gurdjieff's teachings found that um, the accommodations in Paris were Spartan. And there was an emphasis on hard labor, and they didn't like that. Mm -hmm. And Gurdjieff was putting into practice his teachings that people needed to develop physically, as well as emotionally and intellectually. Hence the mixture of lectures, music, dance, and hard manual labor. Older pupils noticed how the teaching was different from the mm -hmm. complex metaphysical system, quote unquote, mm -hmm. that had been taught in Russia. Um, a student describes some of the, the work that he did because he would like take a, a role for each student. He was trying to be all things to all people. So he would just switch, 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 switch. That's really interesting because that's what William Calm did. Uh, that's one mm -hmm. thing that Claire Ashman, the one who we're going to, we're going to interview her in the coming months. Um, I'm really excited about that interview, but um, <clears throat> she was saying that 
he talked to you as if you were the only person in the world, like, Mm -hmm. and would feed off of what you were talking about in a way like, yes, I know, like, I understand and I feel what you're feeling. And just that connection, I feel like it's the same thing with like politicians or charismatic leaders or preachers. Mm -hmm. A lot of them have that ability to like come in remember your name, remember your mom, remember what you're going through and be able to talk right to you, like to Mm -hmm. you, not to the general public, not to the group, but you and your specific situation where it almost makes you like you're, you feel seen. And so you Mm -hmm. want to continue staying with this person. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, um, one of the, uh, quotes about his strange practices in Paris. It says, Gurdjieff was standing by his bed in a state of what seemed to me to be completely uncontrolled fury. He was raging at Orage, who is one of his students who later became famous and set up his own um, like little institute sort of situation. Okay. He was raging at Orage, or Orage, I'm not sure how you say it, who stood impassively and very pale, framed in one of the windows. Suddenly, in the space of an instant, Gurdjieff's voice stopped. His whole personality changed. He gave me a broad smile, looking incredibly peaceful and inwardly quiet, motioned me to leave, and then resumed his tirade with undiminished force. This happened so quickly that I do not believe that Mr. Oraj even noticed the break in the rhythm. (laughs) (laughs) It makes me think of when um, uh, one of the women that were at the camp would always uh not make fun of mom but mention how mom would be sometimes where she would be like so anyway i was talking to shut up (laughs) so you know like and how she would always do that like if we were bothering her while she was trying to have a conversation uh, she would just be like (laughs) and then she would just like I'm trying to talk here. And then she would go back like, yeah, so was, like there was nothing. Well, like I was saying. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> being a parent. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Touche. Touche. Try to have a goddamn <laughs> conversation. <laughs> you need to leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, too much. Man, I miss that lady. Mm. So a famous poet, Catherine Mansfield, um, apparently also died at the Institute at this time while they were in Paris. Uh, she had TB. Mm. She was already dying. And Gurdjieff became known as the man who killed Catherine Mansfield. But all of the other students um, and Gurdjieff, I mean, he felt bad about it, but everybody was like, she was happy. We made her the end of her life fulfilling. This was where she wanted to be. Fuck you all. Yeah. Etc. I mean, I'm not mad about that. Right. And they're buried in the same cemetery, Gurdjieff and Catherine Mansfield. So it's not like, you know, history yeah. frowned down upon him or anything because she had fucking TB. She was going. Yeah. Especially during that time. Jeez. Yeah. So among his students, I mean, we already talked about how they're like middle class intellectual types, but okay. there, I mean, there was famous editors, uh, famous of the time, you know, well known now. You could find a Wikipedia article about them, but um, editors, famous musicians, spiritualists, uh, famous intellectuals and students, writers, psychiatrists, there was a chemist, there was a surgeon. 
I mean, he attracted very smart people. Um, yeah. Which I find interesting because there's, you, you can find his books, you can get them, but there's not a lot of like, there's not a lot of his teachings available to the general public, if you will. Hmm. It makes so, it makes me think of a few of the cults that we've already talked about. Terry Hoffman, mm-hmm. her followers were extremely intelligent people. There was a professor. There were several professors. There was the one guy who traveled internationally and he understood different cultures and he was like this, he studied cultures and like mm-hmm. African religions. And you've got all these people who are extremely intelligent. And I think that it has a lot to do with the charisma of the actual mm-hmm. person speaking because like when you hear someone just talking, it's like, okay. Or you read their book, you don't hear the tone. You don't hear their voice. You don't hear the inflections in like what they're actually trying to say. So I think that it has a lot to do with the actual person talking and the way that they present it and really mind fuck people because why else would all these intelligent people, unless, okay. So there's two ways that this could go. Either they're just like really drawn to the charisma of the leader or they're not finding what they're seeking because of all their intelligence. They've got all this knowledge and they're really seeing the world for what it is. And so they're trying to find something outside of that, which usually makes them to a weird cult. Yeah. So either of those one of two ways this could go. (laughs) Makes sense. Yeah. 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 Thank you for pointing that out. I like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, he's based in France. Um, world war two breaks out boom and a lot of his students leave because they're not trying to be stuck Paris in the middle of world war ii fuck that noise you know what i mean i do he himself decided that he was going to stay in paris because that's what dudes be doing Mm -hmm. um he came under suspicion of being like sided with the nazis he came under suspicion he he ended up being in jail because he was helping his neighbors so none of his students knew whether he was alive or dead but he was actually doing well enough that he was helping out his neighbors when they were struggling because he Mm. was still selling carpets he had money from his oil and his dyed birds and shit Mm. you know he's still the same dude yeah Hustling, um, hustling in the streets. Yeah. The fucking hustler, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> so um, nobody knew whether he was alive or dead, but after after the war, um, I mean, his mother died of cancer. Hmm. A lot of his older students were dying off of old age or disease, or you know, mm-hmm. and life. It was very much exactly life, and it feels to me like it was very much like losing his older sister all over again mm. um, as he started reconnecting with like the students of his students like guys yeah. you guys want to see me can i be <laughs> one of the cool kids now yeah it was super yeah. sad and super Aww. cute kind of feel really bad for him um and apparently his one student ospensky like hadn't told any of his own students that Gurdjieff was still alive over there. He was just like, yeah, that guy, he was my teacher. Yeah. Remember that? Wow. And then Ospensky died and his widow was like, guys, y'all need to go see Gurdjieff. He's sad. He's old. And then they were like, holy shit, he's alive. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Gurdjieff. (laughs) I know. 
So um, he had a, a car accident in 1924. Okay. Almost killed him. Jeez. And then he lost his mother, several students, mm-hmm. got in touch with his his students of his students again. And for a long time, like that story about him yelling in, in the dude's face, he was trying to be the Rock Milevich of the Institute. Like he thought everybody needs tension. I need yeah. tension. If I'm too comfortable, then I'm just going to be another human. And that's got no value to me. Hmm. So he was trying to be a dick. And that's how he ostracized so many of his people. Hmm. But he was also really well beloved by a lot of his people. Um, There's this one thing that I love that he used to do toast to the idiots, where he was like the arch idiot. And the people would go around the room and they'd be like the sympathetic idiot. I'm the loving idiot. I'm the asshole idiot. And then they'd all give a toast to like, that specific kind of idiot that's so, amazing but they stopped doing it after he passed because he was the only one who got the joke <laughs> <laughs> don't explain the joke it's not funny anymore <laughs> that was great that's yeah. so funny um he had another car accident in 1948 don't know how this guy is alive he's been shot three times already like <laughs> <laughs> two car accidents <laughs> so about his car accident the second one in 1948 uh british military intelligence dude jg bennett says i was looking at a dying man even this is not enough to express it it was a dead man a corpse that came out of the car and yet it walked i was shivering like someone who sees a ghost with iron-like tenacity, he managed to get to his room where he sat down and said, now all organs are destroyed, must make new. Then he turned to Bennett, smiling. Tonight you come dinner. I must make body work. As he spoke, a great spasm of pain shook his body and blood gushed from an ear. Bennett thought he has a cerebral hemorrhage. He will kill himself if he continues to force his body to move. But then he reflected, he has to do all this. If he allows his body to stop moving, he will die. He has power over his body. Gurdjieff recovered and died of natural causes a year later. Are you kidding me? I am not joking. This dude, this is it. He's about to die. That's Those are the words of a dying man, but no. No. He lived for another year. Died wow. of natural causes. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Cheers to the idiot. <laughs> He's like, um, who's the dude from Anastasia? Oh, um, why can't I think of his name? Starts with an R as well. Um, yeah. But you know, he got shot. He got mauled by a bear. He was swept away by a river and he was still fine. You know that guy. He also sold his soul to the devil, too, several times. I mean, over. probably. That's how he survived it all, of course. Yeah. No, if you look at, like, the actual history of that dude, the we're talking about the magician, the, the guy who was the magical, um, the magician yeah. of the court. I uh, want to say Rachmaninoff, but that's not his name. I know it's not his name. It's definitely it's something. The- uh, Rasputin. Rasputin. Rasputin, yes. Yep, he was uh, the, the advisor to the Tsars. It is very possible he molested the princesses. It is, if you look at the actual history of yeah. Anastasia, it is absolutely devastating, and there is no way anyone survived that. It's really sad. 
makes me sad. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, he's alive at the same time. I mean, he, yeah. George Gurdjieff worked for the Tsar and yeah. during the Bolshevik Revolution. So he was probably probably took a few tips from Rasputin. Yeah. Very interesting. So he died in 1949. Um, natural causes in France, and he was buried in the same cemetery as Catherine Mansfield, who had died of TB in his mm-hmm. institute. Um, and when he passed, Jean de Saltzman established, I mean, several, several foundations. The Gurdjieff Foundation of New York, the Gurdjieff Institute of Paris, Gurdjieff Society Incorporated, and several other groups. Um, those wow. were all in 1953. And she also established Triangle Editions in the U.S., which claims copy on all Gurdjieff's posthumous writing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I would like to just point out that while he did marry that Tibetan woman and then marry um, maybe a decade later a Polish woman in Russia, mm-hmm. he also had several children um, who either themselves claimed to be his children or who he recognized, and as well as his students and his friends recognized as his kids. Interesting. Um, some of them are by married people who were, I mean, he was friends with their husbands. So I don't know exactly how it went down, but I find it very curious. Yeah. I don't know I'm, if it was like a, If it was all consensual. Then it's all good. And the husband right. knew about it and he was consenting as well because it's not right to just come in and like mess up somebody's stuff. Right. Cuckolding is not cool. Not cool. You separate, then you cuckold. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know. <laughs> anyway. So um, some of his known children include Cynthia Sophia Dushka Howarth. Mm-hmm. Um, her mother was dancer Jasmine Howarth. She went on to found the Gurdjieff Heritage Foundation. Uh, Sergei Kaverdian. His mother was Lily Galumnian Kaverdian. Andre, born to a mother known only as Georgie. Okay. Uh, a daughter named Eve Taylor, and the mother was one of his followers, an American socialite named Edith Ainsley Taylor. Hmm. Uh, Nikolai Sternval, whose mother was Elisaveta Grigorvenia, wife of Leonid Robertovich de Sternval. Hmm. Uh, Nikolai Sternval has a website where he talks about growing up there a little bit very interesting Hmm. um michael de saltzman you'll remember that name Mm -hmm. his mother was jean de saltzman and he later became head of the gurdjieff foundation now remember jean de saltzman is a famous dancer who is married to alexander de saltzman Hmm. like de saltzman is not her last name it's her married name yeah so I mean, you know, as we said, if it's consensual, all good. But if not, not cool. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, he also has a daughter named Svetlana Hinzenberg, who is the daughter of Olga Ivanovna Hinzenberg, and the future stepdaughter of architect Frank Lloyd Wright, who was pretty famous, was one of his students, and apparently was fine with raising his daughter. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. That is so interesting. Wow, this dude had quite a life, huh? Right, I know. 
fascinating. There's so, so fascinating. much stuff that I didn't fit in. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. It's crazy. Nice. No, that was good. Ugh. So what do you think? Cult or um, commune? Oh, man. It's hard to say because now I want to pull up our our document of what we call a cult. Mm, yes, I did reference that. There's like one, one or two things that don't really fit completely. Okay. I one mean, if there's only one or two that don't fit, I feel really? like that's a cult. Because <laughs> we <laughs> say it has one or some of these aspects. Okay, so to review, if you did not listen to episode one, I've had people say, oh my God, I can't wait to listen to your cult podcast. I say, please start at episode one. We go over how we define a cult, what we define it as, what where we're coming from, mm-hmm. and don't sue us. <laughs> so, Amen. <laughs> check episode one. But if you didn't listen to episode one and you're starting here, you rebel you. This <laughs> is what typical cult traits. The group practices unusual religious, spiritual, or philo- philosophical beliefs. The leader is not accountable to any authority. The leader, yes, the leader uses manipulation, abuse, or illegal actions to influence control, influence and control the group. Usually extremes, it it requires extreme dedication and or financial or physical sacrifice. Physical sacrifice is a check for me. I mean, that's a check. Yeah. And he did, he did lie a lot. So there's that. Manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. The leader typically targets vulnerable people who are in a vulnerable position in their lives. I mean, I feel like he was in a vulnerable position and just attracted those kinds of people. Mm, um, very true. Leader dictates how members feel, think and act, what to wear, where to live, how to discipline your children, uh, questioning, doubt and dissent are discouraged and punished. Uh, group is pressured by the leader into seclusion, disconnection with past relationships and family that are not group members and communal living. Okay, yeah. Uh, Use of certain practices are used to suppress doubts in the group, like meditation, debilitating work routines. The group is encouraged to actively recruit new members to join the group. Yeah, I mean, some of his followers had followers. Mm -hmm. Uh, The leader will change their name. Hell yeah, this motherfucker did. (laughs) Prince Jose. Something (laughs) grandiose. Yeah, I mean, I would say cult based on our criteria. Um, is it as bad as some of the other ones that we've talked about? No, like uh, people no. enjoyed it; they were digging it. Nobody died of like shitty. Only stuff. one person died, and that was on purpose, right? Like, yeah, no, I think that uh, I think we're safe in calling this one a cult. Very right. interesting, though. So, were you in a cult? Do you have a favorite cult? Is there a cult that you want us to cover? Or do you just want to tell us a funny story? Something that funny happened to happen. Yeah. Something funny that happened to you. (laughs) Happened to happen. (laughs) Happened to happen. Uh, Send us your stories at twosisterscult at gmail.com. We have a Patreon. Our weekly podcast will always be free. But if you donate to our Patreon, it will support the show and allow us to create more amazing content for you. You can go to twosisterscult.com and click on Patreon on the top menu. You can get some exclusive perks like a shout out on the show, access to our top secret 
Facebook community. If you join at the $10 level, you'll get a Two Sisters in a Cult sticker and exclusive monthly bonus full-length episodes that will not be available on the podcast. Nice. We have some pretty sweet merch available in our shop. You can pick from decal stickers, t-shirts, and other fun stuff. Click shop in the menu at twosisterscult.com. And the best way for you to help us out on the show is to like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to tell a friend who you think would like us. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Two Sisters Cult. Come hang out with us. Catch you on the flip side. And don't join that cult. Unless you want to. It's not that dangerous. You want to. It's not too bad. I mean, really. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever you're into. <laughs>